Luke 2.41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival, according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the the teachers, the rabbis, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at, at at his answers. When his parents saw him, they were, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Normally this is a passage that you read after Christmas during the season of Epiphany, but I thought there's some some good Advent material here for us. Um, If you are single and you read this passage... You, you might be tempted to be rather critical of Joseph and Mary. I mean, how can they go an entire day's journey and not realize that they've left one of their children behind? You know, what, what derelict parents they must be. Uh, when I was single back in high school or in, in college, um, that's what I thought. I was kind of hard on Joseph and Mary. Then I had kids. <laughs> and you, you quickly realize how hard it is to keep track of all of them. Um, yeah, how many of you parents have left the place before you've driven away and you've left a, a kid there? But raise of hands. I mean, probably all of us. <laughs> it would have been especially easy for them in in their their day and the custom when you were heading out on a long journey. It was very customary to have the women and the children go go first, be at the front of the caravan or get basically a half a day's journey ahead of the men because they go slower than the men and the men would follow at the back of the caravan. Well, so they start out from Jerusalem. Uh, Mary would have realized that Jesus isn't here, but since he's probably preparing for his bar mitzvah, you know, the bar mitzvah took place, takes place at age 13, you know, he's probably at the back of the caravan with Joseph and the men and, and, you know, he's talking with them, doing manly things, in the back. And then Joseph would be, he would realize too that you know, Jesus isn't here, but of course he's probably at the front with Mary. She's, he's helping take care of the little boys. He, he's, he's so considerate the way he takes care of the other little boys. Only he wasn't there. And they finally realized that he's missing. Three days. I purposely highlighted that when I was reading it. They looked for three days, 72 hours for him. I mean, if you have... We've all lost our wallet or our cell phone or our keys before. They lost the Son of God <laughs> for three days. Now, Joseph and Mary were entrusted as guardians 
of the most important treasure in the history of our world, and he goes missing. They lost the Son of God. Um, Imagine the panic that would go through their minds, the questions that would go through their minds. Uh, has he been abducted? Has, he, has Herod finally got him? Um, is, is, he, is he dead? Is he dead? And the questions would probably, have we messed up God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the world? <laughs> have we screwed it all up? It was the worst three days of their lives, three days of sickening worry, um, a lot of times during the Christmas season, we'll pull out our photo albums. A couple things we note about photo albums. There's more pictures of our kids in photo albums than anybody else. And there's more picture of our kids at Christmas in photo albums. It's either Christmas or birthdays. The preponderance of our photos and our photo albums are kids at Christmas and birthdays. Would you find it strange if I pulled out a photo album and there's only maybe one or two baby pictures. And uh, all of the rest of the pictures in the photo album are pictures of the person when they're age, we'll say, 33 to 37. Wouldn't that be a peculiar photo album? If there's no baby pictures, there's no kid pictures, there's hardly any Christmas pictures, it's just their 30-something years. Well, that is the picture that the Bible gives us of Jesus. Very peculiar. If you think of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as a photo album, 99% of the photos are of him in the last three years of his life. We only get like two Christmas pictures. And and then you realize this passage is so special and unique. This is the rarest picture in all of the Bible. Because this is the only picture we have of Jesus as a child. These are the very first words uh, that Jesus ever utters in the Bible, as far as we know. And so it, it begs the question. It made me ask the question. I want you to ask it with me. Why this picture? Why did God choose this one rare picture? What is it supposed to tell us about his son? I find it very interesting that... Um, It's easy to get the wrong picture through this picture. Several Italian Renaissance painters, as well as Rembrandt, have depicted this event in the life of Jesus in their paintings, the the boy Jesus in the temple. And the title they normally give to these paintings, the works, is often something along the lines of Christ disputing with the the theologians, Christ Uh, disputing with the doctors. The the boy Jesus is kind of lecturing the rabbis, showing them where they're in in error, showing them who's boss, so to speak. That's not the picture we get here. Verse 46, look with me. After three days, it says, after three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the rabbis, listening. Listening uh, Listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus Christ is spiritually curious. He's spiritually hungry, and he's spiritually curious. He's he's teachable. He's sitting there in the temple courts learning. Um, There's nothing sensational about this account, and that's one of the reasons I love it so much, is it, it just shows a spiritually curious, interested young boy who... Uh, 
apparently has some pretty amazing insights because it says, the passage continues on in verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his his answers. So what does this picture teach us? What does it show us? It shows us that, um, I think it shows us that his parents taught him well. His parent, Joseph and Mary, taught their son the scriptures, taught him well. It's not as though he, if he in this passage answered a hundred questions, a hundred theological questions in ten minutes, we would be able to dismiss it as though, oh, that's just the the divine power on him. Uh, He's omniscient, he knows all things, he can answer a hundred questions in ten minutes. The fact that, that he is listening and learning and and also speaking tells us that the, the way he got biblical knowledge and theological knowledge was he was taught. He was taught by a mom and a dad who loved God's word. Um, a very pious family. It tells us that the, their custom was to travel down to Jerusalem at least once a year for Passover. And maybe for uh, the two of the other major festivals um, that's a pretty big undertaking. If you live in the northern part, like if you lived in North Idaho and you had to take a pilgrimage to Boise by foot uh, a couple times every year, that's, that's cumbersome and is expensive and tiring. And yet this is a family who did it. Probably when many other families, Jewish families, wouldn't bother, nevertheless, they did it. They would bring him down to Jerusalem. They would take him to synagogue every Saturday. They, they, it was a family that was, honestly, it was a family that was in church. And I bet, because this is the, this is the year that leads right up to his bar mitzvah, it was a time of intense spiritual training and insight from a father to a son. I bet you Joseph spent a great deal of time with his, with his boy, teaching him, here's how you love God. Here's what it means to love God. One of my favorite pastors is a guy by the name of Randy Alcorn, prodigious author, pastor, formerly pastor of a church in Portland. And one of the things that he stresses in his writings is the importance, I mean, this is, it's like a no-brainer, but it's, it bears repeating, the importance of having intentional spiritual conversations with your kids, which when they get into their teenage years becomes increasingly difficult. <laughs> you know, with their five and six and three and ten, I found it relatively easy to have intentional spiritual conversations. When they become teenagers, I don't know. It, it's, 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 it's more challenging. I don't but we need to have that. That's, that's modeled for us by the Holy Family. How do we do that? Brandy Alcorn, he says, um, he says, well, Here's what I did. Uh, at Christmas time, I sat down with my grandkids, and I, I said, you want to know what my favorite Christmas carol is? Even if you don't, I'm going to tell you. Uh, my favorite Christmas carol, when I was growing up, it was Silent Night. But I grew up in a non-Christian home, and I, I liked the sound of Silent Night, but I didn't even, I had no idea what it meant. In fact, I had no idea what any of the Christmas carols meant, but I liked, I liked Silent Night. Now that that I'm a Christian, my favorite Christmas carol is Joy to the World. Because, as my wife pointed out to me years ago, it's the Christmas song that longs, that looks forward to Christ's return and the new earth. He rules the world with truth and grace. Um, he says, that is what my heart longs for, more than anything. 
for him to rule the world with truth and grace. And for no more, no more sins and sorrows, no, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Christ's redemptive work is going to restore the earth to what God originally intended it to be. Everything touched by the curse will be renewed. And so he just he sits down and has that conversation with his grandkids. He, it, he shares his heart and his mind. He shares his passion for God and he also shares some decent theology. Um, and you've got a, if you've got one or the other, but you don't have both, it's not going to work. It, dads, you, you really, you got to, you got to have a passionate love for the, for the word and for God if you're going to pass that along, anything like it along to your sons and to your daughters. He goes on, what, is my, what was my fondest Christmas memory? My fondest Christmas memory was my mother's smile. I vividly remember 40 years ago sitting at the dining room table with my mother and brother after a huge turkey dinner, and I remember playing Monopoly on the table, and it was my mother's smile. The, uh, the decorations, gift-giving, meal preparation, all of that that's the heart and soul of Christmas festivities, None of it holds a candle to my mother's smile. I cannot think of Christmas without thinking of her, and I can't wait to see that smile again. Heart and theology. Let's look at verse 49 then. Verse 49 is a, is a startling reply that Jesus gives to his mother Mary. He says, <clears throat> Why were you searching for me? If I... If one of my kids went missing for 72 hours straight and I find them and the first words out of their mouth is, why were you searching for me? Oh boy, that would, (laughs) it's not going to go well for them or for me at that moment. (laughs) Why are you searching for me? Um, There's not a hint of remorse in that reply. There is, he is not admitting to having done Anything wrong? He's not a dumb kid. Obviously, he's pretty intelligent. He can carry on conversations with Jewish rabbis. He's not saying, oh, I wonder why you were searching for him. You know, he, he, it's a rebuke. He rebukes his mom. Why were you searching? Why were you? You should have known where I would be. That's what he's saying. You should have known that... I had to be in my father's house. Father's house. You know, that word that we're so familiar with now, but you go through the Old Testament, you find that hardly anybody ever talks about God in terms of being one's father. I mean, about the only times that father gets used in the Old Testament is if God is like the father of a nation. Nobody uses father in terms of a personal address in the Old Testament, until along comes this 12-year-old kid, <laughs> and he knows something that I guess nobody else did, presumably because he was unique. You know, he's, he's claiming a unique personal relationship virtually no one had ever claimed before. Um, incredible self-awareness here. You, you remember how in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, the king, it, he kind of... He's uncomfortable with being king. Aragorn, 
he kind of goes through the identity crisis of, am I king? I don't know that I really want to be king. And that's a very common theme, you know, in comic books and movies, especially today. You, you rarely have anybody kind of stand up and say, I'm the man. I'm unique. I'm special. Everybody, all your, your great hero figures have to go through this self-identity crisis. Um, like if you, some of you are old enough, you remember the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. Are you who the ones that they say you are? I forgot the word. For, uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And in Jesus Christ Superstar, how is, how, what is Jesus, how, what is he like in that? He's, he's, a, he's full of identity crisis. He's a, am I the Christ? Am I? In the, do you notice what's going on here? He understands something about himself. Um, no, we don't. How did he get this idea? Was this because he intuitively knew, because he was the son of God, that he had this unique relationship with the father? Or was it because his mother and father on earth taught him about all the strange events surrounding his birth? Or, or what? We, we're not sure, but, um, but he understood that God was his father. And the beauty of the narrative of scripture is he's not exclusive. He doesn't say, oh, I got God as my father and all the rest of you. The, the way that scripture, the whole narrative flow of scripture is he's inviting the rest of us into that, um, that, that father relationship too. Then finally, I want to look at verse 51 as the, the final stop. Then it says, Jesus went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them, to his parents. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. What does it mean for Mary to treasure all these things in her heart? Um, in, in her heart, not hearts. Uh, she had to have thought a lot about Jesus. <laughs> and she had to have thought plenty about the events that took place and the words that he spoke, she treasured these, she kept thinking about them. Uh, she had growing insight as she thought through them over and over again. And she said something like this to herself. She said, may I never forget what God has shown me today. This is a remarkable woman. She is rebuked by her son after he ran away for 72 hours And instead of being put off by that rebuke, she says, may I never forget what I was taught today. Isn't that a, she's an amazing woman. Did you realize, Mary, may I never forget what God has taught me today. One of the great theological controversies in church history occurred in the 5th century when the then bishop of Constantinople objected to calling Mary the Theotokos, or the Theotokos, the God-bearer. The bishop's name was Nestorius, and he, um, there's doubts today whether or not he really held the views that were attributed to him, but but Nestorius and the Nestorians, all of them, they said that, 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 no, that can't, Mary can't be the the God-bearer because because God isn't the type of being that can be born. Um, How does God get born? That, That can't be. One of the things that they did is they tried to, they had a, they were not comfortable with Jesus being one person. They tried to make him kind of a a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, 
He was two, two people, two, two people in one body, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. On the one hand, you have Jesus' humanity, and his humanity is his human person that gets born and Mary, grows, becomes hungry, gets tired and thirsty. All of that's part of, of the human person, but none of that could be the divine person because, you know, how does divinity grow? And, you know, how does divinity suck at a, at a mother's breast? You no, know, the divine person, now we see the divine person when he's healing people and feeding the sick and driving away demons or being transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the divine person healing miracles, Dr. Jekyll, um, coming out of the birth canal, learning how to crawl, learning how to walk, learning Aramaic and Hebrew, Mr. Hyde, they, going through puberty. It's the 12-year-old Jesus. and So they said, no, Mary can't be the Theotokos. She can't be the God-bearer because God is not the kind of being who can be born. And the early church said, yes, yes, he can. They insisted from beginning to end that we have one person with two, two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And that's why we can put two things that we should never be able to be used in the same sentence. We can say this in all truth and actuality. God became a baby. God became a crazy statement. Try saying that to a non-Christian friend of yours. Talk about God can go through the birth canal. They're going to look at you like you probably have a a third eye growing out of your forehead. But crazy, but the early church and what we've confessed for now 1,800 years, we say, this is true. Here's the significance of it. Um, If you're not a Christian, I'm sure you celebrate Christmas because everybody celebrates Christmas. But, But what is, if this thing is real, what is Christmas show you? It shows you several things. It shows you that God wants to be known. I've used the illustration uh, uh, many times that if Shakespeare wants Hamlet to know him, there's only one way for Hamlet to know Shakespeare. And what is that way? It's for Shakespeare to write himself into the story, into the play, as a character in the play. And that's exactly what the claims of Christianity maintain is that God wrote himself into human history as its main figure, as its hero, in order to be known by Hamlets, you and me. It tells us something else. It tells us something about God's character. Uh, really, Christmas tells us the only reason you would have Christmas if, is if you have a God who is both holy and loving. Um, most of the gods in this world are one or the other. They are either holy, like Allah, um, or they're just kind of mushy, gushy, loving, loving, like kind of most people's idea of God. You know, if, if you have an all-holy God who's, who's really not an all-holy God he doesn't need Christmas because all the all 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 it does is basically say obey, hear the laws, be moral, obey. That's what pure holiness does. Obey, kind of put yourself together. On the other hand, and all I don't even like to use the word love in this way because I don't really think it's it's love. But you know, the mushy gushy love God, he doesn't need Christmas either because because there's. Hey, if you've sinned, if there's evil, well, I mean, 
We're loving here. He just kind of winks at it, like a, a grandpa who, I mean, he doesn't ever get upset about what any of his grandchildren do. That God doesn't come to earth to save people and redeem people. The holy God doesn't come to earth to save it. The only way that Christmas happens is if God is both. And that's, that's what we maintain. Um, you saw the Frederick Beekner quote on the, the beginning of your bulletin. I'll close with it. I just love this quote. It says that those who believe in God can never, in a way, be sure of him again. Once they have seen God in a stable, they can never be sure where God will appear <laughs> or to what lengths God will go or to what ludicrous, ludicrous depths of self-humiliation God will descend in his wild pursuit of man. I think the last thing that Christmas would say to me if I was a non-Christian is how how valuable I am. The 19th century Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, we, I don't know if you remember the words, the part to it where it says, he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The worth, the virtue of Christ, by virtue of Christ's incarnation, the simple profound statement that, that I I am worth something, worth enough for God to come to this place for. We discover the links that our triune God went in order to rescue us from sin, death, and hell in recognition that he appeared not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, it's, it's good to be loved. <laughs> it is so good to be loved. I was listening to a Christian hip-hop song the other day, and, I could, I, and the tag, the... Um, the chorus just kept saying over and over again, it's good to be loved. It is so good to be loved.